Before I get into the message, I just uh, I just want to say, you know, um, it's been a tough week, hasn't it, for our nation? And uh, I want to encourage you with this, that regardless of how you feel about the outcome of the election or how you feel about the way things are and how, however you feel about the fact that the Seahawks lost yesterday, um, you know, Security. The <laughs> um, Bible says this. It says that uh, God is working on an administration, an agenda, a strategy, a plan, a purpose to bring everything in heaven and on earth together under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And as we look around at things that happen in our world, whether they're national or international or local, uh, the thing that we need to remind ourselves when we're feeling unsettled is is that God's at work. We don't understand all of it, and a lot of it just is so hard to understand and hard to, hard to receive, hard to accept, hard to understand how God is at work in it, and yet he is, and, and he is bringing everything together under the lordship of Jesus. That's, that's what's going to happen. At the end of it all, um, and uh, and he will reign forever and ever. Well, this morning at the close of uh, this service, as we did at the last service, we'll be celebrating uh, three baptisms. Uh, people who have received the gospel, who have believed it, who have embraced it personally. Uh, and in light of that, I thought that it might just be a good occasion for us to spend a few minutes thinking together about this question, what does it really mean to believe in Jesus? What does it really mean to trust in him as Savior? And I'd like to begin by uh, calling your attention to a true story that's contained in the book of Acts, chapter 16, verses 16 to 34. Uh, if you were with us for our recent study through Philippians, you might remember this story, that God had called Paul to go from where he was to Macedonia, which uh, today is in northern Greece. But the name of the province, the Roman province, was Macedonia. And the Apostle Paul obeyed that call, and he went there along with his friends uh, Silas and Timothy and Luke. Luke was the one who wrote the book of Acts. And when they went over to Macedonia, they arrived first in the city of Philippi. And as they were going about their business there of connecting with people and communicating the gospel to them, uh, they were being followed and harassed by a slave girl who was demon-possessed and who worked for her owners as a fortune teller. And uh, this went on for days. Interestingly enough, what she was saying about them was true. She was calling out in a loud voice as she followed them around, these men are servants of the Most High God. Listen to them. These men are servants of the Most High God. Listen to them. And I just have to assume that it was in a mocking tone. But at a certain point, Paul had kind of had enough. And actually in the ESV, it says he became annoyed. And in the name of Jesus, he commanded the demon to come out of her. 
And of course it did. And so now her owners had a problem uh, having a significant source of income taken from them, uh, lost their cash cow in their anger and rage. They seized Paul and Silas. They dragged him before the local magistrates and they brought false accusations against them. And what followed was that they were stripped of their clothing publicly, uh, beaten, and then thrown into a jail cell. And Luke adds this this little detail, and that's where you know it's like a true story because he's he's telling you a detail that you might not even think you need. But this, he said that their feet were securely fastened in stocks. So what did they do as they were there in jail with their feet in stocks? Well, they, they called their lawyers, of course. Um, the local bail bondsmen, the, their congressmen. Um, no, that's not at all what they did, is it? They, what did they do? They, they prayed. And they sang sa- songs of praise to God uh, in that jail cell loud enough that uh, all of the other prisoners could hear them, the jailer could hear them who was guarding them. And uh, about midnight, Luke says, there was an earthquake a major earthquake. And and as you read the details of it, you, you can almost believe it was like this precision surgical strike on that jail because what happened was that uh, the earthquake caused all the the doors to come open and all of the shackles to fall off of all of the prisoners. Um, and the jailer who had been sleeping, and you can picture that however you want to, was, was shaken out of his slumber by the earthquake and, and as he realized, kind of coming out of, I don't know if you, some people wake up fast, I wake up slow. You know, I'm one of those people that needs like an hour with a cup of coffee just to stare straight ahead. I, I don't know what this jailer was like, but, but he came out, saw what had happened, saw the rubble, understood that all the doors were open, and, and assumed that all of the prisoners had escaped. And, uh, in that, moment realizing that to lose those prisoners would have meant that he would he himself would have lost his life would have been put to death he was about to kill himself when the he heard the voice of paul yelling out from the deep deep darkness of the jail don't harm yourself we're all here don't harm yourself we're all here And then another remarkable thing happened, and it's reported but not explained. The jailer called for torches. They went to where Paul and Silas were in the dark recesses of the jail, and they asked them this one simple question, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? To which they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Believe in him, you'll be saved. And equally remarkable, I think, are the, the events that followed on that very night. The jailer took them to his home, bound up their wounds. Paul and Silas uh, apparently explained the gospel to him and to his entire family. And, and all of them believed. All of them were baptized. And verse 34 concludes the story. He says he re- that he rejoiced, the jailer rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So the promise in Acts 16.31, and and uh, if you grew up in Sunday school, you may have memorized this at some point. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It's a good one to memorize, actually. Simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. 
You know, the world is uh, enamored with the matter of belief. Have, have you observed that? Uh, and it shouldn't surprise us because the Bible says in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that, that God has set eternity in the human heart. Uh, I wouldn't claim to understand the fullness of all that that means, but I think at least it means at least this, that God has written on the heart of every person who has ever lived, ever will live, a sense of the eternal. Uh, that there is something more, uh, something and someone and somewhere beyond the confines of this world, beyond the confines of our mortal bodies, something and someone and somewhere beyond all time. But what and who and where? So there's no wonder that there's so many religious, uh, so many, so many religions and so many cults and so many sects and so many philosophies of various kinds. To possess a sense of the eternal is, in fact, merely human because God wired us that way. What many religions, uh, many religious people believe and what they'll often tell you in a somewhat sappy, sweet, unsatisfying way is that what really matters is that you have faith. What really matters is that you have faith. And not specifying faith in what or in whom, what kind of faith, what kind of belief. Uh, you'll hear people say it's just important that you have faith of some kind. It's good for you. And as I was thinking about it, this in the past week, it occurred to me that, that many, if not most, of uh, the popular Christmas movies that we watched over the past several weeks are at their core explorations of issues of faith and belief. It's it's not too late to talk about Christmas again, is it? You okay with that? Well, here's one example. My One of my very favorite Christmas movies, The Santa Claus. Um, in that movie, we're, we're informed, contrary to the old saying, that seeing is believing, uh, that, in fact, believing is actually a way of seeing. Believing is a way of seeing. And similarly, at the close of the Polar Express, we're told in so many words that Believing is a way of hearing. And the writers of Miracle on 34th Street want viewers to choose to believe in things even if they can't always understand them. And and really the greatest of all the Christmas movies, Elf, um, the major drama at the climax of that movie centers around whether Santa's sleigh is, is going to be able to keep flying after the jet engine gives out. And the premise is that before Santa's sleigh was equipped with an engine, it had always relied entirely on the magic of Christmas spirit uh, uh, to power it around the world. And according to the clausometer on this particular occasion, there just wasn't enough Christmas spirit that night to do the job. So Jovi, the character played by Zoe Deschanel, jumps in, leads the entire city of New York in a rousing rendition of Santa Claus is coming to town, whereupon the sleigh gets air and flies as everyone waves to Santa and Buddy. My generation grew up on J.M. Barry's uh, story of Peter Pan. And you may be aware that in the stage version, the fairy Tinkerbell, because she loves Peter and because she's afraid he's going to drink some poison, drinks it for him to, to protect against him drinking it. And consequently, and quite sadly, Tinkerbell is left dying. 
But the audience, who are, of course, mostly children, is then asked to demonstrate that they believe in fairies by clapping, and clapping vigorously. And sure enough, everyone claps heartily, and the happy effect is that Tink is revived and restored to health. Social scientists have latched onto that and called it the Tinkerbell effect, which is the notion that the fervent belief in anything will bring about happy endings. We might call it belief in belief itself. Uh, What matters is not the focus or the content of your belief, but primarily that you believe in something or someone, which calls to mind the old saying that it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand, first of all, that that's a batch of crock, and, and secondly, that it's really a far cry from what the Bible teaches. The Bible says something very clear and very exclusive, that eternal salvation belongs only to those who believe in Jesus. It's very unfashionable these days to be that exclusive. But there it is. And that's what the Bible says. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. It seems so clean and clear and simple, doesn't it? And it is. And yet it's possible to think that you are, in fact, believing in Jesus and still not be saved. Yeah, that's what I said. It's possible to think that you're believing in Jesus and still not be saved. Let me suggest two reasons that could be possible for any of us. They, They have to do, I think, with two erroneous ways that people think about belief. There are probably more, but but these are two major ones. First, there, there are those who possess what I, what I would just call an experiential belief. And I struggled with how to describe this. That's my label. You can call it whatever you want. Experiential belief, which is equating belief with how you feel. And those who have what I'm calling an experiential belief only will have heard the message of the gospel, will have had a strong attraction to it, because they also had some kind of positive emotional or ecstatic experience in association with it. So they've come to identify their belief or associate their belief with that experience, that feeling. And so from that time on, what is often characteristic of them is that they go looking to replicate those feelings. They'll move from one church to another, from one teacher to another, from one Christian event to another, thinking that that if if they can find similar experiences and feel similar feelings, that they're in a right relationship with God, but absent those feelings, they sense that they're distant and separated from Him. When I think of those who have an experiential belief only, I, I think of a parable that Jesus taught about a man who went out to sow some seed. And it's in Luke chapter uh, 8. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. 
and some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So, as was usual, the disciples, along with everybody else, are scratching their heads thinking, what is he talking about? And so they ask him to explain a little later. And in his explanation to his disciples of the meaning of that parable, he told them that the seed itself is the word of God. We would say the gospel. And he, and he said this specifically about the seed that fell on the rock. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. So there's joy, there's there's happiness at the reception of the gospel, having received it, having heard it. But that seed of the gospel that they received never gets watered never gets nourished. So it never takes root in their lives. They think that the nourishment is in spiritual experiences, but it is not. I don't want you to leave here today with the thought in your mind that the Bible requires faith without feelings. Feelings are a part of who we are. They're, they're part of the way that God designed us as human beings. In fact, the Bible celebrates feelings in response to faith, but it doesn't promote a faith that is based on feelings, that's equated with how you feel. It never tells us to encourage ourselves that we're saved on the basis of emotional responses. And I could say a whole lot more about that, but uh, I'll move on. A second mistake and way of thinking about belief in Jesus is what I'm just going to call intellectual belief or intellectual affirmation, equating belief with intellectual assent to a set of facts or doctrines. To believe in Jesus isn't the same as to acknowledge the existence of Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar or to acknowledge that Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president of the United States, or any historical figure you can name. There are facts about Jesus that you may need to know in order to believe in him, but merely knowing those things is not the same as believing in him. Believing about him is not the same as believing in him. For example, you might agree intellectually because we know that Jesus was a real historical figure. You, you may agree intellectually that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that he lived a sinless life, that he performed miracles and raised dead people to life, that he suffered and died on a Roman cross, that he was buried in a rich man's tomb, even that he rose again from the dead on the third day, as he said that he would. You may even agree that he's coming again. See, a person can agree with all of those things all of those facts, and still not receive eternal life. 
the Apostle James wrote this, James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. There's a, there's a doctrinal statement. You believe that God is one. We're, we're monotheists. You do well. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. Matthew records an occasion when Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee to a region known as the Gadarenes, and, and he, in, he encountered two men who were demon-possessed there. And, and he records that the two were so fierce that, that no one could survive when they traveled through that area. So Jesus arrives, and these two men come out from among tombs where they're living, and they cry out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? I want you to just notice what they understood about him, just in, just in that little piece. First of all, they knew his identity as the Son of God. They knew of their absolute accountability to him. They knew that judgment is coming, when it will come, a sense of the timing, and that he is the one who will be their judge. On another occasion, Jesus was teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum, and another demon-possessed man in the synagogue cried out to Jesus, What have you to do with us Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And again, you notice that, that the demon knew his name, knew his identity, knew his authority. See, Satan and his minions fully believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They have better theology than the rest of us. They understand things that we we just look at and, and wonder about. They believe that Jesus died for the sins of the world, which is why they tried to destroy him prematurely before he could accomplish his mission. And yes, they believe that he rose again from the dead. In fact, they believe all those facts about Jesus more and with greater clarity than we do because they were eyewitnesses to those events. But no one expects to see Satan and his demons in heaven because of their belief in the facts about Jesus. So if neither feelings nor knowledge of facts nor intellectual acknowledgement of what is true are sufficient to save us, what kind of belief will result in salvation? A third kind of belief, and let's just call it essential belief. Essential belief. Nothing significant about that title, by the way. The Bible equates belief with a transfer of trust. A transfer of trust. Some of you may recall the story of a man named Nicodemus coming to talk to Jesus at night. Nicodemus was a a Pharisee, a Jewish elite leader, came to Jesus under cover of night, probably because he didn't want others to see that he was talking with this 
crazy rabbi. I often refer to it as the original Nick at night. And in the conversation, Jesus makes this statement. Verses 14 to 15, John chapter 3. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Serpent in the wilderness, huh? (laughs) If you don't know that story, you're probably wondering what it's all about. It's recorded in the Old Testament book of Numbers, chapter 21, verses 5 to 9. The people of Israel are in the wilderness under the leadership of Moses. And once again, they're complaining about food and water. God judges them and disciplines them with serpents. Sends serpents among them to bite them. Beginning of verse 5, And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. How many of you moms have heard that from your kids? There's no food. We loathe this worthless food. There it is. Complaining. And then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people. How many of you moms would like to have that happen one day? They bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. You know, it's a funky story, isn't it? You got questions? (laughs) Me too. Interesting story, but will you notice this one important fact? There was nothing that the Israelites could do to save themselves from the serpents. God provided the one and only means of salvation that day. All that anyone had to do was to look up at the bronze serpent that Moses had set up on the pole, and they would live. Just a glance. Just eye contact, looking away from the dilemma of their circumstances to the solution. And and having looked at the bronze serpent, just, just looked, they would be delivered. But notice again what Jesus does with that. Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man, referring to himself, be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The bronze serpent in the wilderness is a foreshadowing of the cross. You see, there's nothing you and I can do to save ourselves from sin and death. 
And right about the moment you think you're morally doing pretty good, you blow it, don't you? I mean, you're reminded over and over again. We are reminded over and over again that that we cannot meet God's righteous standard. The Bible says that all of us have sinned and that the just compensation for our failure to meet that righteous standard is death. But Jesus would be lifted up on the cross to provide us with the gift, Jesus himself says, of eternal life. We look to the cross of Jesus. We transfer our trust from our poor, pathetic attempts or utter inability to save ourselves to the accomplishment of God's sin or God's Son on the cross through his death and his resurrection, and we are saved. We receive eternal life. Jesus Christ is God's only provision for the predicament of our sin and our separation from him. So we transfer our trust from everything we've all always believed and everything we've always assumed, and we say, Jesus, I'm looking to you and to you alone and what you accomplished there for my eternal well-being, for my eternal life, my eternal destiny. And Jesus went on in the very next verse and said, For God so loved the world. By the way, Jesus didn't speak in verses, the, the, the verse numbers we've added, right? This is just a conversation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Whoever believes in him, not about him, whoever believes in him, which is that transfer of trust, whoever believes in him receives eternal life. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So the kind of belief that results in salvation then is is a transfer of trust from your ability to save yourself from the consequences of your sin, which is eternal death, eternal separation from God, to God's provision of eternal life through the cross of Jesus. Saving faith is in Jesus, not in a set of beliefs about him or any feelings you may or may not have about him. You may ask the question, how can I be sure then that I have eternal life? Well, first of all, let's ask if it's even possible to be sure. Some people say it's not. The Bible says that it is. The Apostle John, concluding his account of the gospel, John 20, verses 30 to 31, wrote this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. Did you look forward to hearing what those were? (laughs) But these, these things I've included, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
And now listen, and that by believing, by believing, you may have life in his name. Towards the end of his first epistle, which is first John, there's John's gospel, and then there's the letters of John later in the New Testament. First John chapter five, verse thirteen, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may what? Know that you may know that you have eternal life. See, you can know today. You can know. Let me offer you a simple explanation. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 4 to 5, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And he's writing to a group of people in the city of Thessalonica. These are people that Paul knew. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The whole of the Christian life begins with God's choosing. All of the Christian life is a response to God's gracious and loving initiative. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We didn't love him, he loved us. In fact, John writes in in 1 John, we love because he first loved us. Paul wrote to the Romans, but God demonstrated his love toward us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's all God's initiative. Well, how do I know if God has chosen me? Listen to me. I know, and you can know, I know that I have been chosen for this reason, that I have chosen him. And you say, well, that's, I've never heard anybody say that. that. That doesn't sound quite right. Well, before you call me a heretic, let me explain. How many of you have been around a dead body? Human, animal, bird, otherwise? Let me ask you, are they very responsive? No. You can poke, you can prod, you can holler, you can shake them. But apart from a resurrection, a dead person cannot respond. Apparently they can vote. But otherwise they are decidedly unresponsive. And the Bible describes our condition before we believed in Christ, as being dead. Dead in our trespasses, dead in our sins. All those things that, all of those things we did or didn't do that, that added up to the fact that we never met God, right? God's righteous standard. Bible says we are spiritually dead. And in that condition, we are spiritually unresponsive. It's amazing to me that, that two people can be sitting side by side hearing the same gospel message. One of them believes and is saved. The other one says, none of that makes any sense to me. In our 
spiritually dead condition. We could not respond to God. But now listen, when we hear the voice of God calling to us, drawing us to himself, we can know that he is raising us to new life. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. So if I find myself desiring to be reconciled with God, if I find myself responding to the gospel, if I find myself asking him to forgive my sins, to give me the gift of eternal life, these are the first signs that he is making me alive and I am passing from death to life. I know that he has chosen me because unless he had, I couldn't choose him. I wouldn't choose him. You may be here today and you you would say, you know, I've believed about Jesus my entire life. I don't know that I've ever actually believed in him. Maybe you've never even heard any of this, and and today you're saying, I'm hearing that voice speaking in here, and I want to be reconciled to God. I want to be alive in him. I, I want to know that my sins are forgiven and that I have the gift of eternal life. And if you're hearing that voice today, if you're hearing that voice today, I urge you to respond. Transfer your trust to Jesus. How do I do that? Well, you can do it simply as a matter of a simple decision. It goes on in the quietness of your own heart and mind. Jesus, I'm trusting in you. It's not a matter of saying a particular set of words or a mantra or joining a church or joining a club or signing a contract. It's simply realizing that you need a Savior and that Jesus is the one who came to save you. And you strongly desire to be saved. If that's true of you today, I urge you to respond. If you'd like to talk with someone about that, we would love to talk with you about it and, and, uh, and help you understand more. But there's a simplicity about the gospel. Jesus Jesus, in the beginning of his ministry, the first words out of his mouth as he began his formal ministry were, repent, for the kingdom of God is now here. And when we think of repent, we, we think, of, think of the word repent. I don't know about you. I, I often think about a guy on a sandwich board in a city somewhere doing crazy things. But repent simply means to change. Your, it begins with a change of your mind. That's where it begins. Repentance begins with a change of mind. So I stop trusting in my cleverness or my intelligence or my whatever. And I transfer my trust to Jesus and what he accomplished at the cross in his death and in his resurrection. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift of eternal life. Thank you that uh, you are calling men and women uh, in every generation, uh, boys and girls. And we thank you for those who are today being baptized as an expression of their personal faith in Christ, that they have are trusting in him 
and uh, that they, in fact, have passed from death to life, which is the picture that the baptism paints of dying and being raised again to newness of life. Lord, I pray for those who are hearing this message today who are still in darkness, who are still still in spiritual death, that as they hear the message of the gospel, that they would respond and be transferred from death to life. I pray it in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior and our soon-coming King. Amen.